You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight's event kicks off our brand new series dedicated to questions of censorship and freedom of speech called Forbidden Books. In this series, invited lecturers will give insights into the his histories of censorship and discuss its effects today, highlighting contemporary issues and persisting challenges. In addition to this series of lectures, the House of Literature is also releasing a digital anthology in which we've invited six prominent authors to reflect on freedom of speech and its challenges to writers. The anthology, titled Cries and Whispers, features, among other authors, Turval Stern, Ahmet Altan, and Joyce Carol Oates. It will be released later this uh, next week. And we can think of no one better to begin this extended program than tonight's guest of honor, Ian Buruma. Ian Buruma is, among other things, a historian, professor, columnist, and author, both of novels and a long list of popular nonfiction works on war, politics, and the cultural histories of several Eastern and Western countries. Having lived, worked, and held highly respected positions in many countries and across three continents, Buruma is uniquely positioned to comment on how censorship in the East has historically differed from that of the West and the ways in which the two histories overlap. Buruma also served as editor of the prestigious magazine The New York Review of Books until he resigned following a backlash to the publication of a contentious piece in the magazine. Buruma has experienced firsthand the changing landscape of contemporary mass media, and he has written extensively about how new forms of speech can create a space for countercultural groups subscribing to their own realities, such as with Trump and his followers. As largely agreed-upon narratives are increasingly dismissed in favor of alternative facts and conspiracy theories, what kind of information age do we live in? Baruma's lecture will be followed by a conversation between himself and Helge Juhlheim. Juhlheim is a professor of cultural studies at the University of Oslo and former chairman of the board for many years here at the House of Literature. He is the author of several books on, the, on 18th century Europe and is currently working on a book about Berlin out in end of October. But first, welcome to the podium, Professor Ian Buruma. Um, thank you very much for that kind introduction. I'm, I'm astonished to hear my surname pronounced correctly, which um, is almost unique in my experience. Um, but uh, I'm very grateful to be, uh, to be here and to have been invited. Um, the title is slightly misleading because, as often happens when you prepare a talk, you suddenly have different thoughts. Um, so I won't be talking so much about how East and West overlap and so on, but I'll be talking about um, the problems of freedom of speech um, uh, as they occur uh, today, and, and specifically with the, what is known as the culture war uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and the elsewhere is important because I think what we see now is how strong um, soft culture, uh, soft power uh, still is, um, uh, the American influence that is um, in, in, in countries abroad, for good and for ill. Now, as we know, um, few things are as often abused as the idea of freedom of speech or freedom of expression. Very much often, uh, the freedom of speech is used by people as an excuse simply to have the freedom to abuse um, others um, whom they don't like. And the most famous example, I think, of this as a sort of symbol of what I mean is the French newspaper at the time of the uh, Dreyfus trial, uh, La Libre Parole by Edouard Drummond, which was a ferociously anti-Semitic and hateful publication. He wanted to have Libre Parole to, um, uh, to um, spout his, his um, uh, anti-Semitic and, and fascist ideas. And Donald Trump today and his followers um, often use um, the idea of freedom of speech uh, for similar purposes. Uh, they talk about the liberal... Uh, elites um, preventing conservatives, uh, or they call themselves conservatives, they're not really conservatives of course, they're radical right-wingers, but to, who, to the, the idea is that the liberal elites are preventing radical right-wingers right from expressing their thoughts freely. 
Now, when we think about this, um, I think it's, it's useful to keep in mind that, of course, absolute freedom of speech doesn't exist and never has done and never will. There are many limitations to what we can or what we uh, do say and write uh, in all circumstances, even in the freest society. And these can be legal limitations, which are more limited in the United States than they are in, in Europe. Europe has um, human rights laws that make uh, it, it an offense, a criminal offense, to use hate speech. In the United States, hate speech is protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And it's only banned if you can prove that speech uh, results in imminent danger or violence. Um, so legally in the United States, people are actually freer to express themselves uh, than they are uh, in Europe, let alone in other places. Um, and this is something that's very hotly defended. And the, the most famous case, uh, for those of you who might not know, um, happened in 1977 when neo-Nazis um, planned to have a demonstration in Chicago and, and march through uh, a neighborhood that was heavily populated by Jews, including survivors of the Holocaust. And people tried to stop this. Um, and it was the ACLU, ACLU um, the, um, which is a liberal organization protecting uh, freedom of speech and other things. That act, and, and, and its lawyers were often Jewish themselves who protected the neo-Nazis um, and, and argued that they should have the right to express themselves, because if you don't give the right um, to your enemies uh, to express themselves freely, the next time uh, a government is going to, go, going to use it against you and your friends. That was the argument, and I think they won their case. Um, but the limitations of free speech, of course, are not just legal. They're also social. What is, is acceptable depends so much on who says what, when, and to whom. Um, what a journalist, can, a journalist can say more than a head of state or a diplomat. Um, and uh, so we're bound by rules of, of politeness, of um, uh, all kinds of social uh, conventions that, autom that, 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 that by, by definition uh, limit what people can uh, and do say. Certain words that are completely taboo especially today, such as the N-word, um, which can get professors fired for simply reading out loud, say, a passage from a book by James Baldwin, where he uses the N-word. If a white professor were to read that passage in a classroom, he would almost certainly get, get fired uh, today. But I live in Harlem, in New York City, and I hear nothing but that word all the time around me. It's, of course, not used by white professors, but by young black men. And that makes all the difference. So there are those kind of uh, social conventions and limitations uh, on free speech. Um, and I think, uh, and I'm not talking about the legal uh, limits now, but in terms of the, of the conventions on freedom of expression, it's part of an artist's um, uh, duty, really, uh, and possibly also um, journalists and, and other writers, to constantly explore the limits of what is conventionally acceptable. And uh, sometimes um, those limits are overstepped, and that's, I think, a price you have to pay uh, for freedom. And pushing those boundaries, and he here I will say some something about, uh, uh, I'll give you an Asian example. Pushing those boundaries can be political, and they can also be, um, be sexual, for example. And in Japan, for ex uh, which uh, for the last, b before uh, the 1860s, uh, was run by uh, samurai junta, really, where the political criticism of the government was completely impossible. Um, what artists did, did was push the boundaries in another way, which is why, for, for example, by um, uh, making prints or writing novels that were um, pornographic. And occasionally the um, uh, authorities would have to step, step in and, and crack down on this just to show who was in charge. And um, as an echo of this, what happened in the 
1960s and 70s, and some of you might have seen Oshima's, uh, Nagisa's famous film, the realm, In the Realm of the Senses, where Oshima came from a generation of student protesters who'd been very political in the 1960s. And when that didn't get anywhere, when the same conservative government stayed in power, it seemed forever, a lot of pe people who had been student radicals, who'd been Maoists or Marxist-Leninists or socialists of some kind, switched to doing pornography and made pornographic Japanese films. And in the same spirit that artists did in the Edo period in pre-modern Japan, which is another way of pushing boundaries. If you can't do it politically, then see where the boundaries are sexually or socially. Um, to come back to Europe, um, a famous or notorious to some example of, of pushing the boundaries happened in the country where I was born and grew up. Um, uh, the film made by uh, Theo van Gogh uh, called Submission, uh, written by Ayan Hirsi Ali, the Somalian, or formerly Somalian um, woman who became a politician in Holland and now lives in the United States. And Submission was meant to be deliberately provocative. It was a protest against the way that women are discriminated against uh, in the Islam, and it had naked women with Quranic texts um, written on their backs and that kind of thing. And, of course, it led to... Uh, well, not of course, but it led in the end to the murder by uh, a radicalized young um, Moroccan-Dutch um, uh, activist uh, who murdered Theo van Gogh for having offended uh, or blasphemed and offended the, the Muslims. And the, to some liberals, misguided uh, in my view, didn't defend the murder, but did attack Theo van Gogh and Ayan Hirsi Ali by, by claiming that you cannot cause offence to uh, a vulnerable mi minority uh, such as the Muslims uh, in Europe today. And uh, it led to a very heated debate. And in my view, um, people tend to pay too little um, attention to uh, what is a clear difference between giving offence and insulting. Giving offence is having, expressing an opinion or a work of art or anything that happens to offend certain people, so offend the sensibilities of religious people, whether they're Muslims or Christians or anything else, or political views, uh, anything of that sort. But it's not meant to hurt those people, it, it happens to hurt those people as the effect of what you're saying. Insulting is always deliberate, which is a very different thing. And I think um, we should be careful about insulting people, obviously. We should perhaps give more leeway to um, expressions uh, that might offend. And, and just the fact that something can cause offence should not be a reason to stop it, let alone ban it. Um, perhaps uh, the best illustration um, I can think of of this idea that people have to be safe from offence um, is a very recent case of an American artist, a painter called Philip Guston, um, who did paintings that were meant, clearly meant, to be um, um, uh, an attack, a criticism of American racism. And he used, in a sort of satirical way, figures of uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan in his paintings. And um, uh, there was going to be a, a big show of his paintings in the United States as well as the Tate Gallery in London, and it was felt that uh, the images themselves could be taken as an offence by um, black people and others, uh, and therefore they would feel unsafe, and therefore the show had to be cancelled. Now, this seems to me uh, 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 to have been a very bad idea. It's now being, and, and there was so much criticism that it's now being revived, and it is good, the show is going to take place in the United States in the Tate Gallery, but people who go there are now reassured by the organizers of this exhibition that there will be trauma specialists on site who can make sure people don't feel unsafe or traumatized or offended by the experience. This is how far we have uh, gone. And I think th this brings me really to the main 
point I want to make, which is that feelings now, especially uh, in America with, with its long tradition of uh, having a sort of therapeutic culture, that feelings have become more important than reason. If feelings are offended, um, people have to be protected. This is the, the notion. And the repercussions for offending feelings are not legal usually, but they are social uh, and professional. You've probably read at the time the case in 2020 where the editor of the opinion page of the New York Times uh, was sacked because he ran an article by uh, a right-wing senator called Tom Cotton um, uh, who said that the police should be much harder, should crack down hard on Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And it was important, actually, to publish this article because not only was Tom Cotton an influential senator, but he was also, at the time, going to be a presidential candidate or had those ambitions. So you could argue we should know what these people think. But such was the outrage, not only outside the New York Times, but inside the New York Times from colleagues and others who said that this was offensive, that made them feel unsafe, and so on and so forth, that the editor... Um, had to go. Another example, uh, in 2022, um, a professor of art history um, was fired by his academic institution for having shown a 14th century Persian painting uh, of the Prophet. One Muslim student complained that this offended uh, his or her, I cannot remember, but um, religious sensibilities, institutions being as they are, cowardly, sacked the professor. This was later um, rescinded, but nonetheless, uh, this happened. And the idea is always that what is harmful to people's feelings um, has to be avoided uh, at all costs. And the problem is with this is that you cannot really argue with feelings. Um, feelings are not receptive to re reason. There are two different categories. And when religion comes in, it becomes particularly um, problematic, as they say, because religion is so often constitutive of identity. It's not just, a, a religion is not a matter of opinions, it's a matter of belief, and, the, and the, that belief is very much part of who you think you are. So it's very, um, you're very easily uh, offended. But dismissing uh, religious belief with rational arguments is really missing the point too, because the whole, the whole idea of something um, that, you, that you, you deeply believe to be sacred is not something that's open to debate or, 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 or reason anyway. And I think this notion that what people hold sacred, what people feel is sacred, sacred, um, should be protected uh, against any kind of criticism, I think has come back in the cultural wars of today in a secularized form. And I believe it, it, it often has the whole um, ritual of public apology and uh, so on, um, of which we've become very familiar today, I think has deep Protestant roots. Much, much, it's much less prevalent, I think, in Catholic countries, in southern, less prevalent in Southern Europe than in Northern Europe. Catholics, when they sin, they go to their priest. But Protestants don't do that. Protestants, in order to be, and this goes back to a long pietistic tradition, if they've erred, if they've um, lost the right, the correct line, in order to be accepted back in their community, their religious community, have to issue a public apology and attest to the orthodoxy of their fate. And I think we see this really in a secularized way. It's, it's not that people who behave in this manner are all Protestants or even religious, mostly they're not. But it's, it's, a, it's a religious way of thinking and behavior that we now see um, in a secular uh, uh, manner. And um, this issue of, of, of feeling versus uh, let's say reason or or, or science even uh, we say see in many different forms. Science, of course, is in itself um, not unproblematic. It's not, there are many things 
many problems with the idea of taking a completely scientific view uh, of everything. But there is a, 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 a tension, as we see in the trouble that J.K. Rowling got herself into about her, uh, because of her statements about transgender and her view that there is something biological about being a woman and you cannot deny that and you cannot simply claim to be a woman and then be accepted as a woman. There are biological differences that we have to recognize. This was her view. Uh, we know how much trouble she got into uh, for saying this um, and denounced as a, a transphobe and so on. Now, J.K. Rowling is so well entrenched and so powerful that it doesn't hurt her, but it, it can hurt a lot of people to challenge, simply to challenge this notion that I feel I am a woman and therefore I am a woman, or I feel I am a man and therefore I am a man. And I think there are echoes here of a 17th century um, uh, debate or conflict. Um, and I came really, I was reminded of this um, while researching a short book I've done on Spinoza. And the main a contention in the 17th century in, in, in Spinoza's Netherlands, but also in other countries, but especially in the Netherlands, was between uh, the uh, theologians and the philosophers. And the philosophers, of course, were the scientists of their time. And this became very political. It, became, it was started in the, in, in, in the universities. Who has the right to, um, um, inquire, to, to, to teach the students truth, as it were? Is it the theologians who should have the right to have the, the monopoly on truth because it's revealed truth um, from God? Or is it the uh, philosophers who are trying to find truth by reason and scientific mat, uh, methods. And Spinoza's answer to this conflict was not to say the theologians are all wrong, which of course he did think, but um, his answer to the question was to keep these two, two um, uh, um, quests for truth separate. Leave um, the Bible to the theologians, leave religion to them, and let the philosophers find their way to the truth um, and, um, and, and let both sides be free. So don't, and I think we can learn from this by saying, don't deny people's feelings. If somebody says they're a woman or a man because they feel that they're a woman or a man, whatever their bodily functions may be, we can respect it perfectly well, but let's not confuse it with biological differences. There, there are two different ways, perhaps, uh, of looking um, at gender. And I, I, I th I'm very skeptical about the idea that education um, uh, has as a task, or educators has a, ha, have as a task, to make students feel safe or comfortable. Um, one's t task, and that's true of, of any writer, any journalist, of whether it's an, any writer of fiction or non-fiction, any artist, is to make uh, people think and not simply to um, make them feel safe, to make people think and make them feel uncomfortable. And this is, again, a price you, you, you have to pay for the freedom of inquiry. And the point of art and literature, of course, is also to make you feel. But um, the, 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 the inspiration for people to, to think for themselves, I think, is enormously important. And uh, causing offence uh, is the risk we have to take as the price of, of freedom. And I think that the safety from offence um, is an enemy of reason. Now, many people would argue with me, having said these things, that surely uh, right-wing censorship... Um, banning books, burning books, taking books out of libraries, putting polit political pressure on um, uh, educational institutions and so on um, that have um, books that don't fit the religious or right-wing or conservative agenda uh, should be banned and so on. They have more political power, so they're more dangerous. That is probably true. I think right-wing censorship, as it's taking place uh, in the United States and probably elsewhere, um, is... Uh, politically at this point more dangerous than the left-wing progressive uh, variety of this kind of thinking. Um, but I would say we should criticize our own side, as it were, the progressive liberal uh, side, because what is 
happening uh, more and more is that the right wing is simply mimicking the attitudes of the left. So what the left calls harmful because it harms the, or offends the feelings of Muslims or other minorities, whether it's gender or race or anything else, the right will mimic that and say it's dangerous. So you'll have right-wing politicians in Florida who insist that books have to be banned because they hurt the feelings of white people, for example, or they hurt the feelings of American patriots. Um, and so they are, in their view, uh, just as dangerous as um, other kinds of books are offensive or harmful uh, in the eyes of the progressive left. So um, I told you the story about the man who got fired for uh, showing a Persian miniature of the prophet. Um, in Florida, um, another teacher was fired, uh, also an art historian, was fired uh, because conservative parents had objected to the fact that he showed uh, his students uh, an image of Michelangelo's David. Uh, a nude image, and therefore dangerous in the view of um, the right wing in Florida. Um, Donald Trump complains often uh, of being um, persecuted by a black prosecutor in Georgia in one of his, the, the many cases he's facing now, and calls this racism, which is simply mimicking, of course, the language um, that's used um, by the progressives. So... Uh, so I will take the uh, advice of Isaiah Berlin, uh, the great liberal philosopher, who said that the best way to defend liberalism is to constantly subject it to criticism. And I think we should, do, uh, we should fight the enemies of freedom on the right uh, by being very vigilant uh, that people on the left um, don't um, uh, endanger the freedom of expression in their particular way. And with that, I will stop, and um, we can have a discussion. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was uh, thought-provoking. And I, I, I thought... Um, I'm, I, I just moved back from the U.S. I was, I was struck by the intensity of feeling that we were encountering and how much it's changed through the last six, seven years. So I was, I'm, I'm tempted to jump, to, to jump at your bait, kind of, and, and jump directly into the present. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to let you sort of um, jump out of history that way. I want to do a little sort of his, historical okay. detour still, I think. Um, and I think. And it's also partly because I know your work from before. I've been reading your work through since... 1994, I realized, when Wages of Guilt came out, uh, the book on memory politics in Japan and Germany. And at that point, I knew something about Germany. I knew nothing of Japan. And I was, I was so impressed by the fact that there was something new about both. I mean, now this dual view isn't as rare as it was in the 90s, but it's still sort of a it's still sort of one of the great assets of your work, that you've been continuing that sort of dialogue exchange between the East and the West at the heading of the of, of, the, of the lecture since, well, since you started writing, basically. I hope you'll continue in this vein. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so basically, uh, I mean, how, because I guess the question we need to, uh, the question we could ask is how did we get to that moment that you just described? And uh, you've, your, your way into discussing this has been sort of in that constant dialogue between East and West. So I, I guess my, my first question would be, how does, how does that sort of influence your view of where we are now in questions of freedom of speech that you have looked sort of in parallel, they had this dual view of the world in all through your historical, historical work for so long. Is that, how does that give you well, another way of looking at this? Well, one of the reasons that I like looking at things in a comparative way, and especially um, it's sort of comparing East Asia, China, Japan, and so on with, with the, how people in Western civilization look at, at similar things, is not to point out how different they are, but really to point out how, first of all, the underlying humanity that is often much um, uh, closer than we assume just because the, the surface, the cultural surface is so different. In this case, too, I think 
it's not very fruitful to look at uh, whether the Japanese or the Koreans or the Chinese um, look at these issues of truth and feelings and reason and so on differently because very often it's not so much cultural as political. I mean, obviously the Chinese government has very different views on the freedom of expression than, say, the South Koreans or the Japanese. And I think that they're facing similar problems and uh, which play out in different ways in different cultures, mm. of course. But um, one of the main problems with... Um, one of the main reasons, I think, that, we're, that there is such doubt now about the whole concept of truth is the collapse, in, in a sense, of all uh, authority. Mm. And I don't mean political authority and, and, and uh, order or that kind of thing. But um, in a democracy, there has to be some kind of consensus that there is such a thing as truth. You can have different interpretations, you can have different views, you can have different interests, but there has to be a, a, a sense that there is such a thing as truth. There also has to be a trust in, certain, in, in sources of information, so newspapers and, and old-fashioned media uh, in, in the pre-internet age, that you had editors and journalists and writers who tried to get it right. Now, they don't always get it right. They make mistakes, they have their own biases and so on. But you have to trust uh, when you've... You're, you're getting information, especially about subjects you don't, you're not very, you, you don't know very well, that there are people who are trying to get it right. Mm. When, all that, when, when all that trust ev evaporates, which I think it, it has largely happened, and you get into the free-for-all of the internet, where there is no authority anymore, where you just have um, uh, websites and bubbles and, and uh, a kind of Babylonian... Uh, chaos, um, people very quickly lose the sense that there is such a thing as truth. Mm. That is strengthened by the notion, and, and I think once people f let go of the idea that there is such a thing as truth, uh, the road is open to demagoguery, mm. because if there's no truth, then everything is propaganda. And that's, again, I think it hasn't helped that from the left um, in I mean, this goes back a, a, a quite a long way, but more and more uh, the idea has been built up that uh, truth is simply or what people say, opinion, uh, quests for truth. Truth doesn't exist, but everything that people say is basically a reflection of their power, of their race, of their class, and so on. Now, if there is no such thing as truth, if you let go of that, then, as I said, then everything becomes propaganda. Mm. And if everything becomes propaganda and partisan, it's very difficult to see how you can have a functioning democracy. Right. Let, let's, let's go with that idea and just try to change it a little bit. Because, I mean, one, the, 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 the sort of freedom of speech extremist would say, well, the only way we can know is, th is that every argument is tried in the trial of fire of the public sphere, right? So that's, that would be the argument. You, f you can only find truth because there isn't that authority. We can only find truth if we all fight about it, which is sort of one way of... But th that's what basically what we're seeing to a certain extent now. But I, I think the, the, other, the other issue here is, is sort of... Uh, the, the commons, in a sense. It's not just about authority. It's, it's about how uh, we need to share something, it seems. To be able to agree, we need to share certain frameworks. We need to share platforms. We need to share... And, and it seems, at least, that this is coming back from the US, I think. What, what, I, what the big difference is that we... I feel in Norway, we still share more... We have more things in common. We have a, a more solid collective platform, in a sense. And, and that's... That's the other, I mean, authority might be important, but so is sort of to have a, a certain commonality, a commons that you can use for discussing what is true and what is yes, real. Yes, but that becomes more difficult, and this is not an argument against immigration, but our societies have changed a great deal. Um, what we have in common in the past was often articulated by the authorities of the church, for example. And um, uh, 
we, we cannot, no, there's no Western society anymore which can and should define itself as basically Christian. So a lot of that common ground um, has disappeared, which is one reason, I think, also for the rise of right-wing populism, which romanticizes this collective notion of uh, nationhood or, mm. or religion and, and, and so on, and finds, and, and it's, it's echoed on, on, on the progressive side by insisting on collective identities and identity politics which um, insist that everybody is a representative of a certain ethnic uh, background or, or, or race. Um, so what we have, have in common is, has become more complex, perhaps, mm. although that, that can be exaggerated too. People weren't, didn't, weren't quite so unified in the past as people assume. But um, that's become more difficult. But again, by authority, I don't mean bosses. I mean that we have to accept that some people know more about certain things than other people. If I want to have uh, my brain operated on, I don't want somebody I've picked out of a website. I want somebody who knows how to operate on a brain. And um, that kind of, uh, that, that is now associated often with elitism and so on, but I think that, that it's, it's dangerous if we uh, completely let go of that and if we say, well, the popular argument wins. I mean, everybody can say whatever they like, but um, in the end it's the, it's the public that decides. Well, if, if that's what we want, we'd probably have hanging back. Because if you put it to a public referendum in many countries, I don't know about Norway, but in many countries you say, do you think that criminals uh, should be hanged or murderers should be hanged or child rapists or, or people who've done such heinous things? You probably find a majority that say, yes, hanging is, is the best way to, to, to treat these things. So popular acclaim, I think, is a very bad yardstick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, sure. But so, so would sort of restoring church authority be, I, I guess, Indeed. in a sense. So, but, but a key word here, obviously, is, is trust. So how do, you, how do you rebuild trust when you're not, for any reason, or, or f but rebuilding Christian authority or any kind of authority that would look like that? I mean, we've gone through secularization for a couple of centuries. So, so I, I guess then, if you turn it around, the, the, the question would be, how do you, how do you build trust without that kind of strong uh, authority that I don't think these liberal societies will, will see in the near future and probably shouldn't see in the near future. So then the, and this is a discussion we have in, in Norway a lot because we're, we pride ourselves in being a country where we trust the government uh, and trust as our main value and all this. And that means that every time trust comes up as something that is, as, that is threatened, it, it, it feels like it threatens very much the sort of the soul of the Norwegian nation in a certain way, right? Uh, so I, I would be interested in how do you how do you how do you think about how can we how can we work to rebuild trust in this in this particular moment where trust is, seems to be the, the scarcest value we have. In the yeah, that's a very good question to which I, I don't have a glib answer. <laughs> I would be. I think it is. I think I think it is the question. Yeah. And um, uh, much of what we see now is a result of things that people of my generation, just my generation, people a little bit older than me, really, but my generation were applauding. So in the late 1960s, 1970s, we applauded the fact that organized religion was collapsing. So the authority mm -hmm. of the church sure. was no longer uh, there. We, we thought this was a great thing. Uh, we applauded more egalitarianism. We applauded all kinds of things. And, of course, thing, things you applaud for very good reasons. I still think we were right to applaud it. Mm. But things that you applaud, that you, think th that you thought were very good, can have unintended consequences which throw up new problems. Mm. And um, the lack of trust in elites and in, in the authority of experts and politicians and so on, goes back to the days that we thought we should um, basically um, uh, overthrow all forms of authority, mm. which mm. was the, 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 what, what the educated youth in the 1960s wanted. But once you do that, you have another problem, mm. which is what we're facing now. Now, how to fix the problem, 
I've never been very good at um, <laughs> figuring out. It's not the work of the historian, maybe. I don't know. I just wanted to see if we could historicize this moment in a, in a slightly different way. And, um, and this is partly because everything in this room will know that, that, and you're probably aware also, that the Danish government is trying to, to ban burning the Quran by, by legal means, right? That's right. what they work to do. And, and I, I... They want I, to ban the burning of the Quran. Right, right. Yeah. right. Okay. Uh, and, and then it's, it, it got me thinking, and what you've been writing about before, and got me thinking about this, the, the burning of books. Uh, which is, which is, and, and as as a Germanist, the burning there's the burning of books is 1933 Berlin, obviously, that was the burning of books because you wanted to protect the the body politic of a German people against certain influences. Right. And, well, and Heinrich Heine already talked about that exactly in, in 1817 in the Wartburg. So there's is there is there a history? So it seems book burning can be sort of. Uh, obviously a tool of censorship, but now we're discussing it as a tool for, for protection again, uh, or for, uh, to avoid it as a tool for protection. So I just wonder, is there a story to be told about how, how the burning of books can, can work in different ways according to censorship and, and, and freedom of speech? Well, burning of books, of course, is always bad. The question is, why do people want to burn books? Mm. And Again, it has a lot to do with the religious attitude. If, if you hold, hold something sacred, something that challenges what you think is sacred, uh, is very frightening and has to be banned. Um, and, it's, and then you get the, the, the phenomenon of iconoclasm, iconoclasm mm. the idea that, that you, if you're afraid of, an auto, of another faith uh, or something that challenges your, deep, your deepest faith, you destroy the symbols of it. Now, in the case of the Reformation, it was destroying things in, in Catholic churches and, and, and smashing saints and that kind of thing. Burning books, of course, is a, is a version of this. Mm. But we, again, we see a, it's, it's been secularized in the sense that why do um, uh, certain progressive people that just to use that awful word, which I try to avoid, who, who think of themselves as woke, want to ban certain books or images, not necessarily burn them, but ban them from the classroom and so on. It's that certain ideas on gender and race and sexuality and so on, they're, they're no longer religious in the sense that they're Christian or Muslim or anything else, but those ideas have become a kind of dogma that, has, that is quasi-religious. That is a question of deep belief. Mm. And so anything that challenges so something that is so deeply believed has to be banished. Mm. So it's more than, than feelings that are hurt. It's, 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 a, it's a secularized form of religious thinking about, um, um, about public discourse and, and, and intercourse. And coming back to the 1960s, I think... A lot of what you see now with people, who, young people, people of student age, who get very upset by um, views on sexuality uh, in particular, that in the 60s were held to be completely normal, um, and, and young people seem, in the eyes of people of my generation, sometimes very puritanical. But that, again, is, I think, still part of a reaction against this notion of my generation that we sweep all, that everything is okay, mm. you just get rid of all boundaries, let's be free, and so on. Free sexuality should be completely free, and all that. Now, that was, gave a very heady atmosphere. Some people, a minority, uh, had a great deal of fun, men more than women. Um, and uh, uh, it's not, it, it, you can understand why people now, the, the, I think the great difference between the, um, the, the generation now that thinks about these things actively and my generation is that we wanted to, to break all boundaries and they want to have rules back. Mm. They want to get back to some kind of situation where you know what is 
uh, respectable, what is not respectable, what you can do, what you can't, can't do, what you can say, what you can't say. And so they're rebellious in the same way that we were rebellious, but we, we want to get rid of rules. Mm. They want rules, and mm. I think that's a very big difference. Mm. Right. So just given the situation that we have now, I mean, I'm just interested in that. Uh, now uh, the, the, the Quran in this case is burned as a, as a political and religious symbol, as a, as a, as a way of, of, of making a statement. Uh, and, and so that's the burning of, of the, that book. And then there's a government trying to, to ban that practice, that practice of burning right. that book. So how, how do we historicize that particular situation, you feel? How do we, where, how well, do we get here? Well, first of all, way? I think people who, who want to burn the Quran, their mindset is not so different from people who believe in the Quran and that you need to kill people who blaspheme, who, uh, who insult the Prophet. It's, it's, it, it's, in both cases, it's a form of iconoclasm. It's the idea mm -hmm. that if you destroy a symbol of something, somehow then you've dealt with the problem, then you've dealt with the enemy. And whether you want to burn the Quran, burning the Quran, the desire to burn the Quran is as primitive and, and, and fundamentally as religious as people who want to kill in the name of their, to protect their faith. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I don't know what the, day, the proposed law in Denmark is. If the law is simply to ban burning the Quran specifically, that would seem a very peculiar law to mm -hmm. me. I think that if, if there were a, um, a law that bans the, bur the, the, the burning of any books, I, I don't think I'd be in favor of it. There are plenty of books I'd quite like to burn <laughs> myself. <laughs> But um, I could see a reason, perhaps, for it. But um, if the law is simply about the burning the Quran, that, was, that seems to be very no, odd. No, it's, 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 that's what they're discussing at the moment. How can they legally sort of contain Stop this? Stop people from doing this. Exactly, by using the law. And I, that, that's, that's basically I, the I think this perhaps is a, is, is a question that is best not dealt with by the law. That, that, it's, it's, that is much better dealt with um, by convention and that um, it, it's completely unrespectable and unacceptable to burn books um, whether they're religious or, or not mm. and um, uh, I think trying to catch all these problems legally is 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 often a mistake yeah yeah I see that I, I but I guess it's your argument is also that convention is becoming less and less helpful because we're losing, because authority and, and trust is, is diminishing. Convention is something of the... Isn't that what you're saying? That, that's that's going well? I have to, I have to try and think of what I'm, trying to, what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure convention is... The, the, the desire for a convention and to strengthen convention, the puritanical desire to strengthen convention, is the reason for the for, for the the lack of trust in in, in expertise and authority? Mm. I think that comes from something else that has to do with the nature of the social media, uh, uh, the uh, a certain taking egalitarianism to an extreme, saying that uh, you see it in the the way art art is discussed or art history. The the, the at the moment. It's become a, a popular notion that um, artistic genius is basically a myth. Mm. Um, people make a lot of money writing books now about how uh, it's not really Orwell who is responsible for these books. Um, he didn't have much talent. It's really his wife and, uh, and so on. But you can take that uh, discussion further by saying there is, no, there is no truth in that some people are more talented than other people. They're just lucky, they're in the right class, they're privileged, they're white, and so on. And so um, it's, it's, it's taking egalitarianism or an egalitarian idea. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody's ta more talented than anybody else. Um, to an extreme, and I think in that way we're probably uh, living in an age of extremes in which cultural arguments and arguments over convention and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable and so on are taking extreme forms because it's become so polarized. Mm. 
Um, and that will settle at some point. I mean, th th this is not going to go on forever, but what is, what is particularly disturbing about it, the current climate, and again, I think America is, is further along that field, that, that route, possibly than Europe, although Europe probably will follow, but is that it's become so polarized that people, of, of, let's say on the right and the left, the Trump supporters and, and the people who hate Trump, um, not only dis disagree on um, political, um, uh, on, on politics, or, and not only have different interests, which is uh, naturally part of any society, they live in different ideas of reality. Mm. And uh, there is no, again, it's the disappearance of the consensus that there is such a thing as truth. Mm. And when you live in, in, in different spheres of reality, then you get, a, again, a secular form of a religious war, mm. where it's not something that, that you can't find the way to truth or reality uh, through reasonable debate or argument. It's one belief set against another, and then you get holy wars, mm. which um, is the death of democracy. Mm. Mm. I think that's what I think. <laughs> so just to, to his to do one more attempt at historicizing. I, 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 living in Baltimore last year, I was passing this, this pedestal where there's been a statue of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, two, two South generals sort of fighting for, for, for slavery, both slave owners that had been torn down. And, and it sort of reminded me that there's, there's some work to be done. There's some fights to be had, right? That has to do with colonialism and mm -hmm. race. Uh, and these, these fights seems to end up in the maelstrom of, of all these issues you've been talking about. But they're still, to me uh, at least, extremely important fights. And, it, and, and very much what you, what you see in the U.S. in a city like Baltimore, well, they haven't been taken. These, these fights are overdue. So I guess one of the questions that, that would interest me also to hear your opinion on is sort of given that, that these fights uh, are overdue and need to be had and need to be public. Uh, how, how can we have these fights in a way that doesn't end up being sort of, uh, being, being, being sort of just another, another example of right. these issues you're talking about? Well, I think by telling the truth about history, by being honest about history, and whether it's in school textbooks or, um, uh, or in, in the media or anywhere else, that, that there is a, a real attempt to face history and be, to find out, to get as close to the truth as possible, which, will, and to, which is always a, a very difficult thing to do, but it's an, it's, it's an absolutely necessary endeavor, and that will find its uh, repercussions in, in politics too. The way to do it is not iconoclasm. It's not simply destroying statues of um, unpopular figures or people who are now historical figures who uh, we now object to. Destroying the statue is not going to do anything. Uh, but even that is perhaps more complicated than I'm making it out to be. <laughs> I, I have a view on the destruction of, of, of names and statues and so on, which is the following. I think that if an image, whether it's a statue or the name of a building or anything else, a symbol, still is politically loaded in a way that, that can poison our contemporary society and politics, there's a good reason for getting rid of them. So uh, as an example, symbols of the Confederacy in the south of the United States are probably better to get rid of because they still have real political, uh, they're still loaded with, with politics. It's a live issue. Whereas getting rid of a, a statue of Cecil Rhodes uh, at Oxford University, I don't think there's much point to it because nobody's going to use the symbol of Cecil Rhodes to revive British colonialism. Mm. It's a de that's a dead issue. So to, to simply get rid of statues of everybody who in the past may have had something to do with slavery or the sugar trade or something like that, I think is, is, is rather useless. Mm. Um, getting rid of Nazi symbols, certainly just after the war in, in, in Germany, 
had a purpose because it was still something that was, was alive. And so uh, there to get rid of these symbols um, uh, was useful. Um, pos probably after 1989, getting rid of most um, communist or certainly Stalinist symbols was useful too. But there are many cases in which I think it's, it's just a form, it's a performance which has no um, particular um, uh, use. Mm. Then again, you don't always know, do you? Right? I mean, it's f at least coming from, from Norway to, to, to sort of be made aware of uh, how sort of um, certain forms of, of racism is still sort of ongoing uh, in certain parts of the US and there, that there hasn't been sort of this moment because coming being a German scholar, I'm, I'm, I'm very sort of trained to see that German moment where you, where you sort of try to break with the past as radically as you can. And I, it, it just seems that um, it's not always clear whether or not these statues in this case or certain kinds of words, certain kind of discourse, has a political effect, still upholds certain structures yes. or not. You, yeah, how it, do no, you know, it, right? it is difficult, but again, I, 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 would, I, I would be skeptical about taking iconoclasm too far. Um, for example, um, there is a tendency to use symbols of something that you abhor, for, and quite rightly abhor, and fetishize them um, in a way that almost makes them sacred, if you see what mm. I mean. So uh, the fact that we can, uh, you cannot utter the N-word, whatever the context, whether it's, it's quoting a passage from a, a James Baldwin uh, novel or uh, Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn, or when you're using it as, a, as a, a, a horrible swear word. If you make no distinctions, just uttering the N-word is already enough to completely uh, demolish somebody's career, then that's a bit like the Jews who are not allowed to pronounce the word for God. It's mm. fetishizing the word and give it, giving it a kind of mystique, which it probably shouldn't have. And, I mean, you know more about this than I do, but I, I had my doubts about that row about the documenta in Kassel. Mm. Uh, was it last year? Mm. I think... Again, the, the, there was so little context. There was a kind of knee-jerk reaction in Germany that anything that shows a swastika has to be immediately removed because um, it's, it's much too dangerous. Mm. And there was a context. I mean, this was made by Indonesians who didn't have the same history. They, it, it was naive. Uh, there were reasons to be critical of it and so on. But if you... I mean, I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about. It was an artwork at, at the Documenta in Castle, which had um, what looked like and what probably were caricatures. It was a caricature of, of a KGB man and a CIA man and a Mossad man, and the Mossad man had a, a swastika, which was certainly in terrible taste. Mm. Uh, the idea was, of course, that they, all these different intelligence services somehow had had a hand in Indonesian history by supporting the military regime that, um, that committed a genocide in the 1960s. Um, and you, have, you really, when you d judge a case like that, you, you should take all that into account. Mm. But the, the, the reaction in Germany, oh, this is what's the And the person who's... who's um, at the head of Documenta, they have to resign, they have to apologize. That is fed, that's, that's sort of an overreaction, mm. I, I think. Mm. And, and, no. uh, and of the same kind of quasi-religious kind as burning the Quran, smashing a statue, uh, whatever it may mm. be. Can I, I, I'll just take one more question before I, I, there, there's a signal that we have to end soon. But since this is a this is the House Literature, and we're, this is a series because it's going to be about banned books. Uh, and, and you were referring to truth before, that how important it is to, to, to sort of get to historical truth. I mean, the, there's another question lying in wait there that has to do with the role of fiction and the mm -hmm. role of poetry and the role of literature. And what, what, what is the, how do you see if you're going to, if, you, if you're going to do sort of one look ahead, what, what, how do you see the role of, 
of literature uh, in this uh, contested space well, of the problem? Here I, I really am a child of the 1960s. Uh, I do believe that, it's, that not every artist has to be provocative. I don't think that. I mean, you, beautiful poems can be written about the beauty of a rose, but uh, an art, part, of, or, uh, part of artistic endeavor is to, to push boundaries, to see how, to, 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 to explore the limits of what is respectable and what is not respectable, of social convention and so on. You have to have the freedom to offend, uh, to sometimes cross those boundaries, uh, to dare to experiment and explore, and sometimes in a prov provocative way. I think that the current climate, the current culture war, will have as a result, again, maybe more in America than elsewhere, of a period, and, and everything changes and nothing remains the same, so it will be a period, of a period of a very timid, um, moralistic, artistic culture, which will be of very little interest. Because in the 50s, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, or f probably for a long time before, what an artist had to be afraid of, the enemy of, of a provocative artist was usually the church, it was uh, conservatism, convention, and so on. Now your enemies are right inside your own world of publishers, museums, foundations, universities, and so on, which used to be areas of relative freedom. Now they're the ones who are, trying to, who are cracking down out of fear of being cancelled, criticised, subjected to uh, storms on Twitter and, and so on and so forth, losing their jobs, all that kind of thing. And so artists are, are going to be fearful. And fear is, the, is, is terrible for good art. On that note, thank you so much for this conversation and uh, for your talk and for being in Oslo. It's great to have you Thank you, you very again. much. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>